My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode two of season four. And today we have a very unusual interview, even by the standards of this podcast, because normally on this show, I talk to an artist or a creative about their inner voyage of creative discovery or the professional journey of their creative career or building their business. But today we have a real live adventurer, Alastair Humphreys, to tell us what it's like to row across an ocean, run across a desert, trek across the Arctic wastes, or bicycle around the entire world. Alistair is an author as well as an adventurer, so he's the perfect person to tell us how all of these epic journeys compare to the creative journey of writing a book. It's a really fun and inspiring conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy this one. Talking of books and travel, one of our previous guests, Joanna Penn, who did some great episodes on the creative mindset and being a more healthy creative, has recently launched a new podcast and website called Books and Travel, where she talks about all kinds of voyages and places and the books that people have written about them or in them or from them including fiction and poetry and other forms of literature, as well as travel writing. I think this is a brilliant concept. As soon as Joe told me about it, I realised that just about the first thing I do when I book a new trip is to stock up on some reading material connected with the destination. So, for instance, if I look round at my bookshelf, I can see anthologies of Australian, American, Japanese and Irish poetry all of which I bought for specific trips to these places. And each time I open the book, it takes me back to that particular trip, which is a really nice souvenir. As you'd expect, Jo is doing a brilliant job of the podcast, sharing her own travel stories and interviewing guest writers and travellers about their own travellers' tales. So if you'd like to try Jo's new show, you can find it at booksandtravel.page or by searching for books and travel on iTunes. Also, just take note, Joe is producing this show under the name Joe Francis Penn, rather than under the name Joanna Penn. And staying with the global theme, before we get to the interview with Alastair today, I have something to say about a phenomenon that affects all of our lives in the 21st century. We need to talk about globalization. For many people, globalization is to blame for lots of bad things in our lives. It's why the shops in the high street all look the same wherever you go. It's why McDonald's is everywhere. It's why the shops in the high street are closing down. It brought us the global financial crisis. It helps multinational corporations avoid paying tax 
while the rest of us slave away to pay our share. It allows big tech to run rings round governments and regulators. It funnels dark money to influence elections and undermine democracy. It enables rich countries to profit from exploiting natural resources, while poorer countries and the environment are left to pay the price. It stalks the earth like an invisible Godzilla, leaving death and destruction in its wake, trampling our certainty and security to bits. Now, I'm not trying to minimise the impact of any of this. And you won't be surprised to hear I'm not promising to solve it all on this podcast. But I'd like to suggest that there's more than one version of globalisation. You see, the problems I've described are mainly a result of what we could call big globalisation. The version that's brought us multinational corporations and a global culture where everywhere starts to look and feel the same. But if we contrast big globalization with small globalization, we can also find plenty of benefits for us as creatives. Small globalization makes the world smaller, more intimate, and more creative. The World Wide Web connects us all, making it easier to connect, collaborate, and create together. You can educate yourself in just about any conceivable skill by searching on the web and reading articles or watching videos or listening to podcasts or buying books or courses or hiring somebody to teach you. You can research and buy the absolute best equipment for doing your creative work, often at a fraction of the price it would have cost you a few short years ago. You can work remotely if you want to, spending less time commuting and more time creating. You can hire all kinds of contractors to help you get more done in less time and to access the skills that you don't have, such as virtual assistants, web developers, designers, editors, producers, composers, and all kinds of consultants. You can find readers, listeners, and viewers all over the world, growing an audience for your work and making a difference to many more people than you could have done in the old world of local networks and national media channels. If you're in business, you can become a super specialist, doing the thing that you love the most, and succeeding by finding clients and customers who are spread far and wide. Like the fourth-generation knife maker on a remote Scottish island, who Patricia van den Acker told us about in season two of the 21st century creative. This is someone who creates handmade knives and then sells them to top chefs all over the world. In many creative fields, you can live wherever you want, as long as there's a reliable internet connection, giving yourself and your family the kind of lifestyle you want, while selling your work to customers on the other side of the world. I could go on, but hopefully you get the point that this kind of small globalization is changing our lives as creatives for the better. So, is globalization good or bad? The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, it's good, and yes, it's bad. Remember what I said way back at the beginning of season one. 
The 21st century is the best and worst of times to be alive and to be creative. Globalism, like everything else in the known universe, is a two-edged sword. You can't have the upside without the downside. Globalization is here to stay. We aren't going to stop it, so let's see what we can make of it. As I said at the outset, one of the golden rules for 21st century creatives is no complaining. Because complaining saps our energy, kills our creativity, and makes us less effective. So focus on what you can affect and what opportunities you can take advantage of. Even when it comes to big globalization, there are things you, can, you and I can do to make a difference. Vote for politicians who are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Spend your money with companies who are aligned with your values and don't buy from the others. Maybe there's even more you can do. Who would have thought a schoolgirl from Sweden could make such a contribution to the global conversation about climate change? And when it comes to your creative career, remember another principle from season one of the podcast. Stay small, go global. Take advantage of small globalization to hone your skills, make the work that only you can make, and find the people who will love it the most and help you the most, wherever you are and wherever they are in the world. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course.
Alistair Humphreys is a British adventurer and writer. Yes, you did hear that correctly. If your image of an adventurer is a Victorian chap with an enormous moustache and a sailing ship, then think again. When he left college, Alistair saw his friends going off to work in sensible jobs, and it looked a bit boring. So he set out on an epic journey to cycle round the entire world, starting from his parents' house in Yorkshire. He spent four years circumnavigating the globe by bicycle, a journey of 46,000 miles through 60 countries and five continents. Since then, Alastair has walked across southern India, rode across the Atlantic Ocean, run six marathons through the Sahara Desert, and trekked a thousand miles across the empty quarter, the largest sand desert in the world. Further north, he has completed a crossing of Iceland and taken part in an expedition in the Arctic, close to the magnetic North Pole. And he's written about his adventures in a string of popular books. Alistair's best-selling book, Microadventures, helped thousands of people discover the spirit of adventure and earned him the title of National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. He has spoken at events such as TED and South by Southwest, and for organisations as diverse as Google, Facebook, Twitter, England Rugby, and the UK Special Forces. I'm delighted to welcome Alastair to the micro-adventure that is the 21st century creative, and to share with you a captivating conversation where he talks about the challenges he encountered on his various adventures, and how real-life adventures compare to the inner adventure of writing a book. Plus, how he manages to balance the call to adventure with his responsibilities as a husband and father. Alastair is a terrific storyteller with some great stories to tell, so I'm confident you'll find this conversation as enjoyable and inspiring as I did. He also has some very interesting and unexpected things to say about the relationship between adventuring and writing and about how to live a more creative and adventurous life wherever you happen to be and whatever your circumstances. Alastair, most of us read about adventurers or watch them in the movies – what made you decide to go on real live adventures yourself? I was originally inspired towards adventure by reading about them, as you say, uh, reading books of crazy men and women doing mad stuff around the world. And like most people, I just read them thinking, wow, that's a great story. But little by little, I started to think, wow, that's a great story. I wonder if I could do something like that. And the answer, of course, was no, of course I can't do something like that because these people are adventurers and I am a normal person. So, of course, I can't do that. So I had quite a long time of um, wistfully wishing that I could do adventure, but assuming I couldn't because I wasn't an adventurer. And looking back on my younger self, I'm incredibly grateful and also quite impressed that I managed to get myself over that initial hurdle of imposter syndrome and think to myself, well, why don't I just give it a go? Why don't I try something? 
and um, it obviously it needed to be something that a beginner could do. It needed to be something that a young person could afford, um, and I wanted it to be tough. I really wanted that physical and mental challenge um, of of a journey. And combining those things together was when I decided to go for a long bicycle ride. That was my first foray into adventuring. And when you say a long bicycle ride, could you elaborate? Because I think your definition of a long bicycle ride is is longer than it is for most of us. (laughs) Um, I had a map on my wall um, in my room at university. And I remember looking at that world map and thinking, wouldn't it be amazing to cycle to India? And I looked on the map and I thought, wow, India, that looks incredible. But then I, my focus turned to India and I thought, well, if I've made it this far, why don't I carry on to China, to Australia? Um, and then the, the idea just started growing and growing in a, in a pretty ridiculously naive way until I thought, why don't I try and cycle around the whole world? So that was the idea I had, but I didn't actually think I was going to cycle around the world. What I actually thought I was going to do was cycle as far as I could until I got tired or I ran out of money or ran out of inspiration and then I'd come home and get on with life but all of that's quite a waffly thing to say it's much easier just to burst into the pub and shout out to your friends I'm going to go cycle around the world that's a much bolder declaration to make even if you don't actually entirely mean it yeah and then you wake up the next morning and you think what what did I say oh gosh that you know I remember so viscerally that that emotion of getting on my bike outside my mum and dad's house in the Yorkshire Dales just thinking what on earth have I done this is ridiculous I'm so out of my depth here this is terrifying and terrible oh dear it was very much I had that sense at the start line rather than thinking hooray I'm going off on a big adventure I felt more like a condemned man who'd uh, sent, <laughs> sentenced myself to uh, four years in exile. And I, I want to pick up on a few things you've said here about getting started, because it is so important. And it is one of the, the big themes of the podcast is, you know, how do you get started on a big adventure? And usually it's a it's an artistic or entrepreneurial adventure of some kind. But I'm glad you've, you're here to bring us the real life thing. And But it sounds very similar because, you, you first of all, there's the curiosity. I wonder what it would be like. And then, of course, the part comes in and says no. And it's interesting that it's, well, but I'm not X. In this case, I'm not an adventurer. But a lot of the time I hear, yeah, but I'm not a real writer or I'm not an artist. You know, that's for other people to do. And it was only when you got past that and you started looking at, well, okay, but I could, you know, there's there's land all the way to India once you get to Belgium. Then, you know, bit by bit by bit, you could start to see it happening. Yeah, it's, I find it astonishing how we all just rule, us out, rule ourselves out of the game before we even begin. Uh, no one really would look at, say, if you're watching football on TV, you're watching the England football team, no one, no one thinks those people were born to be born that good. You know they've gone years and years of being little kids and learning to kick a ball and years and years of playing and playing and playing. But somehow... Um, with writing or creative things, or in my case, adventures, we have this real us and them sensation of um, yeah. um, people like me can't do X. And yeah, uh, ruling ourselves out of the game before we even kick off is ridiculous and almost ubiquitous, I think. 
And so how did you get past that and get to the point where you actually committed? Because, I mean, there's, you could, okay, you, you have the idea of cycling around the world. You've got endless excuses not to do it. Yes. And maybe there's somebody listening to this who, who had such a dream and, and didn't do it. I mean, how did you get past all the excuses and, and actually find a way of making it happen? Um, there are a couple of things. One was I couldn't think of anything more exciting and rewarding and fulfilling to be doing with my life. So I was just about to graduate. All of my friends were going off into the world to, uh, to get proper jobs and real lives and I just didn't quite feel ready for that yet. So I wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had this sense that although I knew it was going to be difficult, I had this feeling that I probably wouldn't regret it if I set off. And yeah. I've always had this fairly morbid sense of mortality hanging over me and a, and a real terror of time passing away. That's always really motivated me to just get on and do stuff now because I don't want to have regrets, which is the sort of standard cliche people trot out. But in my case, very much motivates the the decisions that I make. I really, really would rather try something, realize I don't like it, go do something else, than to get old, look back and wish I'd given it a go when I could. And I suppose the other thing that really tipped me over the edge was realizing that at the age 24, life would never be so simple again, you know, so free of ties and commitments and yeah. um, real life. And I, I luckily had the foresight to predict that and therefore think, right, I've got to do this now because if I wait, real life is going to get in the way. And before I know it, I'll have a mortgage and a wife and a cat and I'll be doomed. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's, that's what got you going. And what did you learn about yourself on that journey? Oh, gosh. I, I began the trip because I was curious about the wilderness places of the world. I loved wild, beautiful landscapes. And also I was quite curious about the physical challenge. I'm not an athletic type at all. I was rubbish at sport, but I started to become really curious about how hard I could push myself physically. So yeah. the two reasons I began the journey. But I soon learned that if you sit on a bike all day, every day for several months, you get very good at riding a long way. Um, literally anyone would get very fit sitting on a bike all day, every day. So there's no skill to that other than perhaps some praise for the persistence. So quite quickly, I realized that the physical side of the journey was a bit of an irrelevance. And actually the big part of it was the mental side. And that I had done zero preparation or anticipation for. And that that was where I really found the the adventure and the challenge began. Um, Knowing that I was on this project, which was going to take several years to complete. Also knowing with real certainty for the first two years that I would not complete it, that it would be too much and I'd quit at some point. So how on earth could I keep myself going on through this difficult experience, knowing that at some point I was going to quit and fail? So I found the the mental side of it really, really hard. Um, The other thing, though, was the more positive side was it, it really forced me for the first time in my life to not hide behind excuses i'm terrible in life if anything goes wrong i'm always very good at manipulating it in my brain till i can blame someone else and make myself come out out of it looking like the hero Uh, but on a bike on your own in the middle of nowhere (laughs) you can't do that if something goes wrong you have to fix it 
yourself. You have to solve the problem yourself. And you can sit down and have a cry and feel sorry for yourself. But at some point, you just have to take a deep breath, stand up and get on with it. And I found that that was a really good learning experience to come out from behind the excuses and take some responsibility for my life. So you were convinced for a long time you were going to fail? Yeah, for the first two years. And at what point did it that tip over to, actually, I am going to do this? So I cycled from England to South Africa, uh, crossed the Atlantic on a sailing boat, and then cycled from the very tip of southern Patagonia right the way to northern Colombia, to the Caribbean Sea. And in all that time, I was sure that at some point I was going to stop because it was really hard and I had a really long way still to go. I wasn't even halfway at this point. And as I cycled to Colombia, I'd come to one of the reasons I didn't give up was because I was trying to prove myself to the world and prove myself to myself. And that kind of kept me going for a couple of years. But after two years, when I was coming through Colombia, I felt by then, right, I've cycled far enough to prove whatever I need to prove to anyone. Uh, anyone who doesn't like it now can go hop on. Uh, I've done enough for that. <laughs> I've, I'm satisfied that this is sufficient now. I can go home with my head held high. And I was very happy that I was going to get to the end of, get to the Caribbean and then give up. So I cycled down through Colombia to the Caribbean Sea and I was went down to, it was basically a yacht club where it was where I could get access to the sea. I was going to take my photo at the end of the pontoon, me and my bike, and then go to a travel agent, book a ticket and come home. And I went... I did that. I got I got to the end of the pontoon, took my photo of my bike, and I was just walking down the pontoon. And someone, an American guy, shouted out from this from the yacht. He said, "Hey, do you want to lift to Panama?" And uh, that the reason I'd stopped at Colombia is because there's no road between there and Panama. And he just mm -hmm. offered me a lift without me even asking. And I thought, "Wow, I can't say that. I can't say no to that. I guess the journey must continue." And from then on, I was into North America, which is a pretty easy six months of cycling up to Alaska. And after that, I only had to ride across Asia. So I just thought, oh, well, I might as well, <laughs> I might as well finish the job now. So, so that, that was the tipping point at that moment. Well, congratulations, Alistair. I don't think anyone has uttered the words, I only had to ride across Asia <laughs> on the podcast before and actually, you know, been able to back it up. Um, and of course, you know, if if you were... If this were an ancient Greek epic, that guy on the boat would, of course, have been a god in disguise, wouldn't he? Mm. He'd have been a heavenly messenger sent to help you on your way because, you know, you're the hero and you're destined to succeed. Yeah, well, he was very well disguised because he had a large belly <laughs> and he drank an amazing <laughs> amount of gin. And I was quite, often quite scared on that boat. <laughs> but uh, no, Zeus, that sounds like my kind of god. <laughs> yeah, Zeus works in mysterious ways. But I do, I, you know, I, I don't... Um, it was an amazingly fortuitous thing, that yeah, it really was. And what was it like when you came home and you could walk into that pub and tell your mates, "Look, I did it." Oh gosh, I well, I learned a very big lesson uh, on that trip that you should not undertake a journey in order to complete it. Um, oh, yeah. I I remember listening to an interview with Bradley Wiggins, the cyclist, and he talks about how he woke up the day after winning. I'm not sure if it was the Olympics or the Tour de France, just waking up the next morning and just thinking, wow, I'm still me. Nothing has changed. And trying to do any big journey as a as a route to try and change yourself is a is a bit foolish. So I basically came home to relief that it was over, a deep sense of 
quiet pride that I'd fi- that I'd stuck at it and I'd achieved something big for the first time in my life, but also just a monumental anticlimax of being home, and the th- and the thought that, gosh, I'm 29 now. I think my life has probably peaked. What on earth am I going to do for the next 60 years? Um, and of course, you go to the pub, your friends are very excited to see you and to listen to your stories for about five minutes. And then they say, right, enough of the round the world chat. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the cricket. And then life carries on. And, you, and, uh, and yeah, and life just carries on. And <laughs> so I found it a very, very strange experience coming home and one that I'd completely underestimated. It's nothing like your best mates to bring you back down to earth. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's a British thing, but it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and how long did that take you all together? Uh, four years and three months to do. I cycled 46,000 miles through 60 countries. Um, I got around the world with boats and bicycles, and, uh, and the whole trip cost just under £7,000. So it's pretty cheap. So you know the money. The money really shouldn't be an excuse, should it? Well, that's that's the only reason that I threw that sentence into this podcast because this isn't a travel podcast. But I know that there's often when when I when you talk about anything in life, the people have their legitimate barriers and they have their internal excuses, and these are often all muddled up together. But but generally, I've noticed that most excuses boil down to I don't have enough time or I don't have enough money and a lot of what I've been trying to do with both in my adventuring world has been trying to tackle those two barriers both in my life and in other people's lives. Yeah and I think the lesson maybe for us is is really if if you say it's time and money then maybe you just don't have enough resourcefulness because you found a way to make it happen. Yeah I've come across this nice way of trying to figure out in my mind whether the barrier is legitimate or if it's an excuse. And so what I say, to, I, I think it's interesting to replace the word can't with choose not to. So, for example, um, I can't afford to cycle around the world versus I choose not to allocate my money to cycling around the world. Or I yeah. can't write a book because I don't have enough time or I choose not to use my time on writing a book. And I find that so when I say that, sometimes it's painful because I just think, ouch, this is a pathetic excuse I'm making. And other times I think, no, I actually can't do this right now in my life. And that that's also helpful because then I can park that idea and do something different or do a smaller version of it for now. I love this. Alistair, I think it, it's a great question. And the, you see, one of the things I say to my clients over and over again is your body is your best coach because your body will give you the truth hmm. of what you really feel about something and, and what you really are capable of. And this is a beautiful example. You know, we, if you ask the question, <laughs> it puts it back on you and, and, you, and you get the ouch feeling. Yes. Yeah. from your body if if you you know if you've been kidding yourself so i don't know i might borrow that and use that i encourage anyone listening to this to, to use that question i think it's terrific yeah replacing uh, can't with choose not to and seeing where that takes your thought process is good yeah and you know as, as a writer myself i'm i'm just getting flashbacks all the way through your description of what it's like to write a book you know you set out full of ridiculous confidence and you wake up in the middle of the night and think well who am I to do this and then you get going and you get going and you get to a certain point and you realize actually I'm probably going to finish this and and that whole thing about you get to the end and you realize 
actually, because you've been so fixated all the way through it. Well, if I do a bit, I'm nearly at the end. I'm nearly there. And you get there and you realize the best part of writing a book was writing of a book. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah, I've, yeah I find the, uh, the, the parallel is so direct in so many things. And in, in my own writing experience, I find the same thing. I, I, for me, finishing writing a book doesn't come with some great celebration. It comes with a sense of exhaustion and a day when I just cannot be bothered <laughs> to read the manuscript one more time. I'm done send it off out into the world and then once a book comes I never dare look at it again because I'll just be cross that it's not as good as it should be <laughs> so yeah I find finishing a book to be a spectacular anticlimax. So what is the relationship between the adventuring and the writing do you go on an adventure and then write it up or is, is it more complicated than that? Um, w- one of the reasons I decided to cycle around the world was because I loved reading and i I thought I'd love to be a travel writer, therefore I needed to have something to write about. So the two things have been intertwined right from the start. Um, when I'm away on my trips, I write diaries every day, um, partly partly so I can remember my own life, partly um, to help me with writing books, and partly because I'm often on my own on these trips, and it's just a way of trying to figure out where my head is at that time on the trip, mm-hmm. and cheer myself up if times are hard. Then I come home, type up all my diaries, and then begin the agony process of writing a book, which is <laughs> infinitely harder than the expedition that I'm actually writing about. Um, sometimes writing also encroaches on some of my projects when I, if some of the things I do, like rowing the Atlantic Ocean, you, is a very expensive business. You need a sponsor for that. To keep the sponsor happy, you have to do blogs along the way and you keep keep sharing your story. So sometimes I'm writing during the trip and publishing during the trip but my preferred way is to go do the trip for all the reasons I want to do a trip come home yeah. and then write a story to have them as separate activities okay so talking of sponsors and money and so on what I mean what is the business model for the modern day adventurer if I'm sitting at home thinking yeah I'd love to to do that how do, how do I make it viable well like pretty much well like most self-employed things you start from a standing start and zero. So I think anyone who's looking to try to become a adventurer slash writer or creative or anything, I think the sensible thing to do is stick with your day job, stick with whatever pays your bills now and squeeze in adventure and writing around the margins. And, um, and because you're not going to earn any cash for <laughs> quite a long time. So the way it works mm-hmm. for me is I went, I saved up for five years, uh, got my 7,000 pounds cycle around the world, came home, started writing my book and to pay for my life when I got home, I gave talks in primary schools. Um, At first for zero money, then for £50 and then I'd just squeeze up my payment by £50 every few months till people started howling in protest. Then I realised I'd worked out what my level was. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was essentially the model for quite a long time. Do a bazillion talks in primary schools um try and get a book published and uh, then and then come up with an idea for a new journey go do a new journey so that the story gets better and just repeat that process of adventure story sharing adventure story sharing um and over a course of quite a lot of years i gradually got to the point where it's become viable sustainable primarily through speaking um i i've written 11 books now and i'm a long way from being able to live off my book uh, money and in the last few years as I started to move into uh, filming my adventures that's led me into the world of 
making little films for brands or being an ambassador for a company um, and getting paid to make short little adventure films and do stuff for them. So so they're, they're my three income streams, uh, speaking, writing and brand type work. And maybe the, you know, the, the last two might not have been very predictable when you set out, but I love the fact that you thought, well, okay, I'm going to fund this to begin with, I'm going to do it, and then I will figure it out down the line, which indeed you are very nicely. What, what I found really interesting is that the decisions I've made in my life that have been entirely around passion and excitement and what I really want to do, even if they sound financially stupid. So uh, three examples of those would be one, cycling around the world rather than being a, a professional um I was, well, was going to be a teacher, so you know, earning a professional salary. Yeah. One cycle around the world. Number two in two thousand and nine was about the advent of uh, when digital SLR cameras started to do video, and the Canon five D Mark II came out, and I saw some of this video, and I just thought, wow, that is insanely beautiful and sufficiently portable to take on an adventure. So I bought it, <laughs> despite never having fil- filmed a single thing in my life or even wanted mm-hmm. to. And it cost £1,600, which Whoa. was insanely expensive for me. And I started trying to learn how to film stuff because it excited me. Um, and the third thing I did was moving from massive big adventures to what I, in the end, started to call micro-adventures, small, short, simple, local things, because that felt exciting to me. Those three things have led to me earning more money than anything I've ever done in my life when I've set out to think, mm, how can I get rich and famous? So I think there's some sort of lesson in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you, these are, and it's, you know, these are things that you could never predict. And yet, if you go on the adventure, then it's, it's not the same as saying leap and the net will appear because, you know, you made sure you had a decent net for the first leg of your journey. Yes, I think leaping in your net will appear is one of the really terrible, um, <laughs> terrible I, advice I things that. of the internet yeah. age, and particularly the sort of Instagram culture of follow your dreams. If you work yeah. hard enough, you can be like me. P.S. It helps if you've got a trust fund sort of thing. So I think there's a terrible, terrible belief system. So it's why I'd say don't quit your job <laughs> um, until things are in place so yeah you have to make your safety net and once you've got a safety net then you're brave enough to to take the leap i think okay let's focus on micro adventures now because you i mean you've done the epic adventures you've cycled around the world you've run not one not two but six marathons through the sahara desert you've rowed across the atlantic ocean and so on all the, all the things that we think wow that's what an, a real adventurer does you've ticked all of those boxes but then you introduce this concept of micro adventures what is a micro adventure a micro adventure is just an adventure and an adventure is whatever you think it is um the difference i suppose is that a micro adventure is something that is sufficiently short simple local affordable that you can do it and you can fit it in around the margins of real life and it removes the genuine barriers that stop people rowing oceans like it's massively expensive and terrifying it removes these genuine barriers and instead leaves you only with the mental things mental hurdles to jump over of making it happen so this came about because 
you know, I spoke earlier about right at the very start, your first question about me reading books, thinking, I wonder if I could do that. And then thinking, no, of course I can't because I'm not an adventurer. I'm a normal mm. person. And over years of doing adventures, I started to get into that the other situation whereby at the end of my talks or through emails on my website, people essentially saying to me, I'd love to do what you do, but I can't because I'm not an adventurer like you. I'm a normal person. <laughs> and I found this really, really fascinating. So that was one aspect. The second aspect was um, I realized that the kicks I got from massive adventures were essentially the same whether I was shivering in Greenland or sweating in the empty quarter desert. So the the stuff, the good stuff, the marrow that I sucked out of adventure was the same wherever it was. And therefore, perhaps mm-hmm. I wondered, maybe I don't need to go to the ends of the earth to find this. Can I find this on my doorstep? Uh, so that, that was the, the second aspect of it. So it's really a way of trying to show that you can get all the good stuff out of living adventurously but that it, I could try and make it accessible for so-called normal people with real lives. That was mm-hmm. the starting premise of the idea. Um, so then to give you, maybe I'll give you a couple of examples. So my first idea of microadventure was to try and prove that you could do adventure anywhere. I decided to do the most boring adventure in the world. So I thought, where do I really hate? <laughs> I'll think of somewhere I hate and go try and have an adventure there. And so I came up with the idea of trying to walk a lap of the M25 motorway. <laughs> which which I live nearby, I spend too much time on, and I think is synonymous with being boring and anti-adventurous. So I set out to walk a lap of that. And to my astonishment, it was a brilliant adventure. It felt, time and again, walking around the M25, I just kept thinking, this is exactly the same as cycling around the world. It's a, a physical challenge, which I like, uh, it's taking me places I've never been before. I'm finding pockets of beauty and wilderness in between Slough and whatever the next junction is. I'm encountering kind, decent, interesting people just like you do in Bolivia or Azerbaijan. This is the same as cycling around the world, just on a smaller and sillier scale. And for anybody listening somewhere in the world who hasn't had the delights of being stuck in a traffic jam on the M25, it, it's the motorway that, that orbits London. So it just, it just goes around in a circle. And it is basically one of the outer circles of Dante's hell. And it's just the absolute opposite. Being stuck in a motorway traffic jam is the complete opposite of what we think of as adventure. So it's pretty breathtaking that you managed to squeeze an adventure out of that. Yeah, it was exactly. I was surprised. And you know, I, w- I was walking in the countryside beside the motorway. So through the fields and villages and towns and business parks and warehouses and golf courses that I encountered along the way, just following my nose. Um, um, the, the other real breakthrough I had on this walk was being surprised at how much of it was beautiful, because this is a really not particularly beautiful or inspiring. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. But I remember walking through this wood. It was only about 100 metres between one sort of housing estate and the busy roads. About 100 metres walking through, and it was, there was snow on the ground. And I was the first through in the morning. And there were fox prints and rabbit prints on the, on the, in the snow. And it was silent, except for the roar of the motorway. Um, and the trees were there. And I thought, this is wilderness on a tiny level. And... For the first time in my life, it opened my eyes to trying to see the potential for wilderness around us rather than just getting a bit depressed about all the built up stuff. And 
Britain, I think, has been the perfect place for me to experiment with microadventures because we are such a small, crowded, unwild landscape that if you can find pockets of wilderness adventure here, you can do so anywhere. So it's been a, a brilliant way also for me to learn to notice and love my own country for the first time rather than what I used to do, which was traditional angry young man of thinking, ah, mm. home is so boring. I need to go to the ends of the earth to have an adventure. So it took me going to the ends of the earth to realise that actually there's some nice countryside near Slough. So are you telling us that wherever we are in the world, that adventure could be right on our doorstep? Well, first of all, I think adventure is mostly inside your head. It's the attitude that you choose to charge every day with, You're going at things with an attitude of willfully leaning into stuff that's new and difficult and different and daunting. I can't think of any more Ds. Doing things that are, ex- <laughs> doing things that are exciting and doing it with an attitude of curiosity and a willingness to look a bit of an idiot and to laugh at yourself. All of these things which were so integral to the years of big adventures I did, I can apply now to daily life. And an example of finding adventure anywhere, um, I'm quite busy at the moment with life and book writing and stuff, so I'm becoming increasingly... Um, constrained by my diary and my schedule uh, like a lot of people but on the first of every month my calendar pops up on the computer saying go climb a tree so on the first of every month this year I am I go to climb this big oak tree near where I live Um, it takes about five minutes to get there a few minutes to climb I sit up there for a few minutes look around notice how the the landscape has changed or not changed in the last month Um, May was the first explosion of green uh, I think back on the last month since I was here, I imagine what I might do in the next month, come back down the tree, go back to my computer and get back to work. And that that small little escape into nature is something that I'm really coming to to treasure with my busy calendar. You know, as you're, you're saying that, you're reminding me, there's an amazing view from the top of the hill behind our house. And it's ages since I've been up there and walked along and had a look. So maybe I'll do that this afternoon and Maybe if you're listening, then you've got something similar just around the corner from you that you haven't visited in a while. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I think actually the so the micro adventures began with uh, there's a relevance to this answer. The micro adventures began with walking around the M25, which was actually slightly on the epic scale for micro adventures because it's still quite a long way. And the re- the way micro adventures became more popular and resonated more was I started making them smaller and simpler smaller and simpler really distilling them right down and the essence when I have to explain the idea the essence that I often choose to explain is that we're so often constrained by our nine to five busy lives but we don't we have a choice to flip that round and instead see the possibilities from five to nine. When theoretical, often we, of course, <laughs> we, we have commitments, of course, but in theory, between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m., we have some freedom. So what might you be able to do in that? And mm. the answer that I always urge people to go do is go find a local hill and sleep on it for the night. Uh, sleep out under the stars, turn off your phone, wake up in the morning on top of a hill, run back down the hill, jump in a river. It's very good for the soul and back into your desk, back to work for nine o'clock the next morning, having squeezed an adventure into your um, into your five to nine. So perhaps that's something you could do, Mark, with your, your local hill sometime. Okay, and I'll have a look out for a local river as well. <laughs> the challenge has been laid down. Okay, and you have a book, don't you, Micro Adventures? 
that helps yeah. people with this? So when I when I started to do micro adventures, I was a I'd been working really hard for quite a few years to get a foot in the door world of big tough guy adventurers and i was really aspiring to be the next ranald fines you know real hard man doing tough stuff and that was that was my real goal in life so when i started doing micro adventures i was very worried that my career was over who's going to want to hear about sleeping on a hill this guy sold lost his soul he's gone soft so i really worried that i was doomed and my career was over and then the micro adventures book I wrote became, by a very long way, my best selling book ever. Um, really? And yet again, that follows what we mentioned before of just following what feels right and meaningful to you is is likely in the end to result in you producing a good product, which hopefully then will resonate with people and you'll find your niche audience and who knows where that will lead you to. But again, who would have predicted that would be the biggest seller? Yeah, exactly. You know, I spent year. I spent. I'm a bit angry. I spent four years cycling around the world. I spent about three years <laughs> trying, to, trying to publish a book about cycling around the world. No one cares about that. But no, go sleep on a hill in suburbia, and suddenly oh, <laughs> Harper Collins come calling. <laughs> they weren't interested with my years of toil. So yeah, it's quite funny. Brilliant. And then the other, I suppose, also on that note, that. My be- my most popular book has now actually become a children's book that I wrote about cycling around the world, which I wrote purely not for any kind of career reasons, just because I'd done so many talks in schools and I really could see the importance of telling kids about adventure and giving them a positive view of the different cultures I'd cycle through. That mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, okay, this is this is something I should do. I just feel I want to do this. So I just uh, wrote a kid's book about cycling around the world. And that is actually now my best-selling book. Um, so again, same principles apply. Again, yeah, again, you could never have predicted, but it turned out great. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's focus on your latest adventure because this is, you know, it's almost like the joke about what do you give a man who's got everything? It's like, well, how do you challenge a guy who's literally been most of the the classically challenging places on the planet? You found a very creative and unusual way of scaring yourself to death on this one didn't you i did but first of all tell me the punchline to that joke what do you give a man who's got everything oh i don't know <laughs> okay I thought doing, I, you, you, you piqued my curiosity okay i'll, have to I'll tell you, you when i meet him <laughs> okay so i so i had my years of trying to do big adventures because i wanted to test myself and scare myself and see what I was capable of and all that sort of usual stuff. And I did that for years. But I gradually started to notice that I was quite good at this stuff now. You know, I could cycle across continents and walk hundreds of miles and cross oceans. And I don't really, I don't say that to boast. It's just that anyone who's done their job for 20 years gets good at it, whatever you're doing. And therefore, actually, I realized that much of the uncertainty of adventure had gone. You know, I know if I got on a bike now with my passport when we finished this call, I know I could cycle to China. I could do that. Um, so the uncertainty and perhaps therefore the adventure has gone. Right. So I realized that instead of living adventurously, by doing these adventures, I was actually just in a rut. I was in a routine and a comfort zone um, in, of my own. So I decided I wanted to shape my life up a bit by trying to look differently at what adventure meant to me these days. Now, going back to reading of adventure books, my favourite travel book from when I first started reading books was Laurie Lee's 
as I walked out one midsummer morning. That young right, man, right, classic book. Yeah, classic book that I love very much. A young man walks through Spain in the 1930s, playing his violin to pay his way, and it's a beautiful, simple adventure, and it inspired me for years. And for for about 15 years, I'd been thinking I'd love to go do that trip, make a great book to do it, make a great film. I really want to do it, but I can't play the violin or any other musical instrument. And actually, the idea of performing music in public is one of my great fears. Having to, I hate karaoke. I hate having to <laughs> dance. These, this is visceral fears for me. And so I put it off for years and years and years. And then I gradually started to think how pathetic I was, that here I was trying to live an adventurous life, but the thing that I was really scared of, I wouldn't do. So I, I had a bit of a, uh, I gave myself a telling off. Actually, and I was on a train and I just thought, oh, I should at least think about doing something about this. So without pausing long enough to talk myself out of it, I quickly got my phone out, Googled for violin teacher, sent a speculative email off to a teacher and uh, asking if she'd start to teach me and turned up at her house the next morning and began to learn the violin. <sighs> And uh, I quickly learned that I was massively optimistic in imagining how good I could get at the violin in six months. Uh, <laughs> it's a very, very hard instrument to play, and it sounds absolutely hideous. Um, yeah, so it was a quite a brutal, sharp uh, learning curve. So I love the fact that you, I mean, it's almost like a social adventure, isn't it? Because the biggest challenge here is shame and embarrassment and, and looking ridiculous in public. Yeah, so I yeah I practiced hard seven months, but seven months of the violin is really negligible, and I was absolutely useless, so bad that I was quite close to chickening out of the whole project. But I persuaded myself to turn up in Spain, and my the reason that this was scary was because I was going to do the whole trip with no money or no credit card. I didn't want you know if I took if I'd taken my wallet, then the violin would have just been a game. But by leaving the violin at home, it became the crux of the whole project. So um, I um, stood up that first morning in Vigo in northwest Spain, never having played in front of anyone ever. I could play five songs for about 20 seconds each really badly. And I was just so frightened, so embarrassed, so vulnerable. It was, it was the most afraid I'd been since the day I set off to row across the Atlantic Ocean which I found really fascinating in terms wow. of what we define as adventure yeah. in our own lives. And in this case, adventure was just standing up in a sunny little plaza, getting out my violin. And I'm sure the, the nature of your audience, there are quite a lot of people listening to this for whom that would be a very easy thing to do and they could do it beautifully. But for me, this was hard and frightening and, uh, and I dearly wish that I was anywhere but there. It was a awful awful but kind of hilarious experience but i bet there's a lot of us listening who can really relate to that experience of the first time you stand up in front of an audience whether it's to give a presentation at work or to act or to sing or to play an instrument or god forbid to read one of your own poems in front of a group of strangers it's it's viscerally terrifying i, I what i found interesting was that a lot of the things I was scared of was exactly the sort of thing a primary school kid was set, would say. You know, I, I was worried about what would people think of me. That was a really yeah. big thing. And, you know, I was in Spain. I didn't know a single person in the entire country, but I still cared what people thought about me. Uh, what if people laugh at me? What if people are unkind to me? What if, what if this doesn't go well? And there's so many 
what is what is what if what if I fall what if I fly um and it was astonishing how much this was a adventure inside my head and when I yeah when I you're right when I do talks about my adventures I talk about rowing the Atlantic and you see eyes yeah people are slightly interested I talk about standing up in a with my violin and suddenly the audience starts squirming they're with me so yeah i'm well aware that this is a relatable adventurous experience and so how how did it turn out how did people react in that square in vigo <laughs> well the most people ignored me i felt amazing <laughs> amazing how much you get totally ignored um ignored some people sort of frowned or just but frowned in just like whoa dude you are really bad not in a mean <laughs> way just in a perplexed way of why are you here yeah. <laughs> um people smiling and laughing at me but in a in a nice way um and it was really i, I just thought i felt completely trapped because i'd committed to this I, I had a month to walk to vigo at, to to madrid I had to walk about 500 miles and i knew that if i didn't earn any money i was doomed so i was playing away for hours with everyone ignoring me just thinking now what do I do? This is this is a disaster. Um, but eventually, one of the genuine great moments of my life, an elderly gentleman walked over to me. I thought he was going to tell me off and say, Senor, por favor, clear off. Give us back our silence. But he didn't. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out a coin and he gave me a euro. And wow, I just thought my heart was going to burst with wow. relief and excitement and exhilaration and amusement, all of the, and adrenaline, all of the feelings you get from climbing a mountain. I was get I got from this elderly man giving me a coin. So I'd done it. I'm now, so I'm now a professional musician. <laughs> um, yeah. And then from, from then on, um, you know, from then on, it makes for a terrible book, but it made for a wonderful journey because from then on, nothing bad happened it was an astonishing experience of just people being kind me chatting to people being more sociable than i'd been on any journey i've ever done before trusting i had to arrive in a town and just trust that somewhere in the next few hours some random kind person will give me some money for playing the violin really badly it was a real exercise in just what will let trying to dare myself to allow whatever will be to be um, and then on top of that of course comes the stuff which I take for granted which was walking 500 miles sleeping out under the stars every night yeah. washing in rivers the beautiful Spanish countryside all that stuff which I used to think of as adventure was a completely background to the real adventure of this trip which was standing up in a plaza every couple of days and just saying to the world here I am. This is my best shot. It's really bad, but I'm trying my best. And that, that for me, was the adventure of this experience. And did you make enough? I mean, you're still here. Presumably, you know, you didn't starve. But, I mean, did you I, go hungry at any point? No, I lived like an absolute king. I earned, <laughs> in, really? a month, in a month, I earned 120 euros. You can live like an absolute emperor for 120 euros in a month. That's more money than any man needs. So it was beyond, rich is beyond my wildest dreams. So uh, mm-hmm. I had a rule that whenever I earned money in a town or a village, I had to spend it all that day. Oh, so you couldn't hoard. No, no hoarding, because hoarding is cheating. Hoarding is your is being a wimp. So I had to spend it all, and that meant then when I got to the next village, once again I would be hungry and desperate again, so I could bring the fear back into myself. So it, it, it was sort of feast and famine. But So, for example, one day I hit 
a, a tourist town on a sunny Sunday morning. And in two hours, I earned 20 euros. I just couldn't believe it. And I went and spanked it on ice cream. <laughs> um, <laughs> really? uh, so, yeah, it was this feast and famine thing. But I ate, you know, I'm quite used from my years on the road to living on bread and banana sandwiches. So to earn 120 euros in a month for me was just sheer gleeful decadence. Sheer luxury, as Monty Python would say. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so f- was foraging allowed? Foraging would be allowed, but I'm an idiot and don't know how to do any of that sort of stuff. I've spent my really? life foraging in supermarkets. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd anticipate before the trip began, I genuinely thought I'd earn so little money that I would have to rummage in bins or steel crusts from cafe tables or steel carrots from the fields i'd really anticipated that's what how i would make the trip work but um i stole one carrot from a field but that was mostly just because they looked tasty rather than because i was hungry so um no sadly i'm not a real adventurer i'm not very good at foraging you see another excuse evaporates (laughs) so okay and you've written a book about the spanish adventure yeah, I've written a book. Uh, it's called My Midsummer Morning. And uh, here's, this, here's a declaration to make in public. Uh, mm-hmm. It is the best thing I've ever written in my life. <laughs> and I say that, I'm, I'm daring myself to say that to people because I'm not saying that as a boast, but I'm saying that as a removal of excuses to myself. So it's a scary thing to say because it means that if anyone reads it and it's rubbish, I have absolutely no excuse to hide behind. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased that I worked really hard on it for a for um a long time and um went through all sorts of drafts and iterations and it got rejected by the publisher because quite rightly they said but nothing bad happens in this book that means it's a bit boring so i had to completely revamp it and uh yeah i'm really pleased with it and do you think part of that is that it was partly inspired by one of your favorite books um i think one of the problems of trying to write a book about your favourite book is that any reader with any sense should just go and read the original book because almost by definition it's better than anything I'm going to write. You know, I'm, it's uh, my favourite travel book, and who am I to try to imitate that? So I was really conscious to try not to just out Laurie Lee, Laurie Lee. Yeah. So I actually made the book very different to that, um, and actually, so so when my when my publishers rejected it, and rightly so, I went back and I decided that I needed to completely revamp it. And it's now very much about my, the things we've talked about, about trying to live adventurously. But it's also um, for the first time I wrote about the struggle of becoming a father and trying to combine being an adventurous, wild hobo vagabond with also being a responsible, diligent, stay-at-home dad and the uh, huge struggle that I, that, that uh, poses. So it was, a, it was a much more vulnerable writing process than I've ever done before, um, okay. which was interesting in the end. And so you have to tell us something about, because I, I do get requests from listeners saying, well, it's all very well, you know, you and your guests saying, yeah, you need to start a company or write a book or create a an amazing show or whatever but you know how do you do that when you've got small children to deal with i mean it it can't surely it can't be more difficult than being a vagabond adventurer tell us how you managed to square that circle yeah well the the other one of the main reasons i started doing micro adventures actually was because i became a dad and suddenly my proposed expedition to go and 
swan off to the South Pole for four months didn't didn't, <laughs> uh, didn't seem such a didn't really uh, seem such a good idea anymore. So so that that was one of the main reasons why my life moved from big adventures to micro adventures. Um, and so micro adventures for me have been a personally a really helpful thing for when the the um, the sort of mayhem and the busyness and the rush and the occasional tedium and boredom of looking after a small young family get a bit overwhelming. I just can put them all to sleep um, and then zip off to the woods, sleep in the woods tonight and get back home before everyone wakes up feeling refreshed and revigorated and a better, more patient, kinder, calmer man, dad and husband. So it's been a really useful thing in my life. But it's also, I think, been very helpful in the mindset that's given me of just trying to squeeze stuff in around the margins of real life so I take my kids to school every day and I pick them up at three o'clock so I now have to try and fit writing books being an adventurer and taking over the world within the hours of nine to three so I completely sympathize with people who get in touch saying that it's hard but uh, it's just trying to leave out the superfluous parts of my life and focus on the stuff which is important which to me these days is my family and then my writing slash adventure and trying to work out how to make both of those work with acceptable compromise on both sides yeah i mean it was certainly we i'm not off to the south pole anytime soon but certainly when our children came along my, my wife and i realized we had to be a lot more organized about how we used our time and in a way we use maybe we probably waste less time and, and use it more for things that that really matter because when you've only got a small amount of something then you make it go a long way yeah and it i'm astonished now at how efficient i am with my life and also this is a this is this moment i'm about to say now is proof that i've now become a boring old fart but i look back on the time before i had kids and i just think oh my goodness <laughs> what i could have achieved in all of that time and of course i know every generation in history says that but i'm fine at that point point of just thinking wow i could have done i could have done so much <sighs> oh well and you tell that to young people and they won't believe you will they <laughs> of course of course of course <laughs> okay however having said that i read this fascinating uh, article about daniel Steele, who i'm sure is a, your podcast readers will be a big fan of daniel Steele, who's written 179 books and i was reading this article thinking 179 books that's ridiculous. She clearly hasn't got any children. It's easy for her. And then it's in the article and she has nine children. Wow. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty bonkers uh, version of time efficiency. Actually, I think um, it was a useful reminder to me that there are more important things in life and being efficient and making stuff. And there's about trying to just have a calm, happy, fulfilling, worthwhile life rather than just constantly focusing on doing more stuff so yeah yeah there's a balance i suppose so alistair listening to you i'm i'm actually feeling my inner adventurer awaken somewhat and it's funny enough you're reminding me of things that i've done in the past that on reflection were, were reasonably adventurous i mean i used to walk all over dartmoor and exmoor in the lake district and i even remembered sleeping rough in spain out in the mountains that you know we were just going through going through spain on a train and we saw some mountains and we thought oh well, why don't we just hop out and sleep so we just oh, and we lost our tent so we just went down by the river and there weren't too many snakes 
And <laughs> we had a lovely time. And that was one of the best things about that trip. So you're kind of making me think maybe I could be a little more adventurous in my own life these days. So maybe now is the time, a good time for you to set the listener your creative challenge. So if you're new to the show, this is the part where I invite my guest to set you, the listener, a challenge that relates to the theme of the interview. And it's something that you can either do or get started on within seven days of listening to this conversation. Okay, so I think for any creative thing or adventure, there are three really hard things to do. One is beginning. Two is continuing until it becomes a habit. And three is getting over that imposter syndrome of thinking that you don't belong. So the idea I came up with is uh, to go climb a tree every day for seven days. Or if you don't have a tree or you can't climb a tree, just get a different perspective. Go up your local hill or up to the top of the local tower block. Just get a different perspective um, every day for seven days. And when you're there, take a photograph, do a painting, write a few hundred words, whatever creative thing it is that excites you and do that every day for seven days then the 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 punchy part of what i'm going to suggest though is to dare you to make it public to put it out into the world to put it on the internet to show what you do to someone and to invite feedback and to dare yourself to be vulnerable and um, do that for seven days and i think you'd be quite pleased pleasantly surprised at how positive the response you get to to it is Thank you, Alistair. That's a great challenge. So, And if you would like to share it with fellow 21st century creative listeners, you can either leave a link on the blog at the show notes at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash adventure. Or what was the hashtag we were thinking of, Alistair? I, th- I like the hashtag 21st century creative. And then you could put it on Twitter, Instagram, and people could people can see it there okay great so hashtag 21st century creative uh, put it there i i will see it alistair i believe you're on twitter as well aren't you so um we would love to see what you make of this challenge well, i tell you what i'm gonna I, i'm gonna practice what i preach and i'm gonna do this myself as well so when the show goes live i'm gonna climb a tree and draw a picture for seven days because i'm rubbish at drawing pictures okay well i can't wimp out now can i so i will do this too (laughs) (laughs) great this this is how big stupid adventure ideas happen on the basis of i can't wimp out i'd better do it too (laughs) yes okay (laughs) i think there's a lot of peer pressure probably sent a lot of people to the north pole (laughs) yes so okay brilliant alistair and it's been an inspiration talking to you just as it has been reading your writings and watching some of your videos so so the book is called my midsummer morning my midsummer morning okay so we'll obviously make sure there's a link to that in the show notes and it will be in all good bookshops where else can people go to find out more about you and follow your adventures and maybe even join in um i do um a couple of different email newsletters one about the adventure world and the adventure side of life and the other one about living adventurously in whatever um, sphere you operate in. That's probably the one that's of most interest to people who are listening to this. And you can find those on my website. Um, you can. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all of those things you should be able to find by Googling for Alistair Humphreys. Great. And that's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R. 
Humphreys. And obviously, yeah. I'll make sure, as usual, that it's in the show notes. Go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm. You've got the show notes for this episode. So thank you once again, Alistair. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to following your further adventures. Thank you very much. I'm off to climb a giant redwood tree now, so I, that's, my, that's the rest of my day busily taken over. You see, the adventure never ends. <laughs> thank you. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, I do hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful if you could take a couple of seconds to just go to the iTunes podcast app and give the show a rating. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up for the course at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.